0: Sunday night health show podcast tonight we are talking lots about the bones and the joints and new treatment options and what remission looks like in arthritis and what does exercise have to do with living longer have I got a secret for you feeling burnt out at work Dr. Tommy Mitchell has some expert advice is your heart racing your blood pressure up But there's a big smile on your face it might be sexual tension and we're talking about this conflict between your judgment center and pleasure center I also review some of the unhealthy modes of couple communication. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Well, there you go. We're all thinking that the pandemic is over. COVID is a thing of the past. Don't even worry about it. If you get it, it's fine. A lot of people have thrown their masks away. I seem to be the only person wearing a mask when I go indoors, whether it be the grocery store, I still refuse to eat indoors at restaurants and I have certainly made a spectacle of myself <laughs> explaining why I won't eat indoors and uh, the restaurants have, have been have obliged me I have to say and have understood my position and have given me a seat outside so I really appreciate that I I, I am so serious about this that even one time I was eating in a Mexican restaurant in the winter time and it literally was one of the coldest days of the year just sitting outside, barely any heat lamp or the heat lamp wasn't working. We were freezing, but there we were braving the cold and the wind to have a dinner out outside. Um, But, you know, how are you dealing with uh, the pandemic? I don't know if you noticed, but just south of us, uh, Joe Biden has rebound COVID, basically from taking the antiviral Paxlovid his symptoms have returned. We saw that with Anthony Fauci as well. So we do see people, I feel like they're giving of it out like candy. You really don't need to take an antiviral like that unless you're having, you know, significant um, symptoms and, and, or you're perhaps at greater risk of um, becoming quite sick. Um, so, you know, a lot of doctors are giving it out in, Urgent care and emergency rooms is what I'm hearing. Um, some people are taking it when they're barely sick, even after um, you know after a rapid test or a rapid piece, well, like a rapid PCR type of test, um, and then not getting confirmation anyway uh, from a lab-based RT-PCR test, which is the gold standard for COVID. But anyway, just know that you can. Um, actually rebound and get COVID again. Um, And then some people are getting reinfected two, three, and four times. So COVID is still with us. Please wear your mask. Please protect yourself. Think of others. This is not just about yourself. This is about others. Anyway, we're going to go to break. Coming up next, we have Dr. Sonia Gill. She's a rheumatologist in Ontario here for Ladies Night. She's going to speak about rheumatoid arthritis and what remission looks like. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening. To the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am very excited to have my next guest on the line because so many people suffer with this particular medical condition, rheumatoid arthritis. Dr. Sonia Gill joins me on the line. She's a rheumatologist from Ontario who is going to talk to us about what it means for people to be in remission with rheumatoid arthritis or RA. Good evening, Dr. Gill. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. So let's just step it back just a little bit. And just for the listeners who might not know, what exactly is rheumatoid arthritis?
1: Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, it's an autoimmune condition. So it gets a bad rap where uh, a lot of folks feel that rheumatoid arthritis is a is a autoimmune condition where the body's out of control. But in fact, our immune system is working appropriately. It's just hyperfunctioning, where in the sense it's attacking the joints and attacking some of our healthy cells and can cause a lot of inflammation and joint pain, swelling. um, And it comes from the immune system that is, in that sense, malfunctioning or hyperfunctioning.
0: And so can people have, when they talk about an arthritic hip or an arthritic Mm. back, um, is this typical rheumatoid arthritis?
1: Oh, that's a good question. There are many types of arthritis. And uh, I can tell you the older we get, the more types we are prone to getting. (laughs) But the wear and tear arthritis, which is a different name, that's called osteoarthritis. That tends to be more where it's one hip or the lower back and tends to be the one that you'll find after activity or at the end of the day is starting to bother you. That's where folks will say I have a bad back or a bad hip that limits me from um, you know, certain activities. For rheumatoid arthritis, it's uh, more many joints at the same time. And it tends to be more of a morning stiffness that comes on and actually feels better with movement and activity. And then folks might say, oh, I get stiffened up if I sit for too long or if I'm not active, it kind of creeps back into my joints.
0: Very interesting. And, and at what age? Is there a particular age where it's? it sounds like this is a genetic um, or familial condition? So can yeah, it strike yeah. younger people?
1: Yeah, very good word, familial. Because we haven't yet found one specific gene for rheumatoid arthritis. So there is not one blood test that for sure will diagnose rheumatoid arthritis. But it is familial in the sense that one might remember their mom or their grandma having rheumatoid or some type of arthritis, they'll say. Um, the more reliable thing is is remembering mom or grandma having swollen joints, but it won't happen in every generation guaranteed. And uh, other than there being a few triggers that we are aware of, that's what cause that, that arthritis.
0: And what are some of those triggers?
1: Yeah, so the triggers... Um, uh, that I can mention, especially around age 30 to 50, where people might notice their first attack happening. You might find it more in those who are smokers. Unfortunately, there is a higher risk of smoking associated to rheumatoid arthritis. Obesity also has a slightly higher risk of rheumatoid. Having that family history of somebody with any autoimmune condition, but of course, especially rheumatoid arthritis, those are some factors that we um, control and others we cannot.
0: Very interesting. I did not realize that at all. Um, and so what are the, you, you mentioned somebody may have their first attack between 30s and 50s. So what is that like for somebody?
1: Oh, it could be life-changing. So I've heard everything from, I woke up one morning and it felt like I got hit by a truck and I never felt the same, um, to just having a very mild onset of finger stiffness or um, toe discomfort for the first few steps out of bed. But if this is becoming more like the first half an hour, or the first one hour that every day is starting in this way, that's where it becomes suspicious. So it can be um, very dramatic with your first attack or it could be a very slow onset, which is why it's important to um, not necessarily you know, have a diary of things, but maybe have an eye on the pattern of what's been happening to these symptoms if they're starting to become more and more noticeable
0: hmm and and does it progress does it get worse and do people have diffuse pain so we have multiple joints throughout our bodies uh, can they have experienced pain throughout all of their joints
1: oh, wonderful question so rheumatoid arthritis can affect almost every joint in the body to become a little academic here it affects only synovial joints and so those mm-hmm. are certain joints that have a, a, different type of makeup. And when they get swollen, um, we have them all over their body. We have them in the hips, we have them in the fingers and the wrists. The only place we don't really have synovial joints is in our skull. And it's only very rare cases after many years of disease where you might get rheumatoid in your neck. Again, that's very, very rare. So that question of you know the low back and um, Uh, maybe headaches, for example, most of the time those are not related to rheumatoid, but basically everything else that has a synovial joint, so toes, ankles, knees, hips, shoulders, elbows, can all be affected. Maybe not all at once, uh, but it's usually both sides of the body and more than one joint at a time for rheumatoid arthritis.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I suppose the unlucky few can have osteo and rheumatoid arthritis as well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. osteo, unfortunately, you cannot avoid. That happens to all of us. Sometimes it starts even by age 30, 40, 50, and that definitely gets worse with age.
0: Mm-hmm. So what is the treatment for rheumatoid arthritis?
1: With rheumatoid arthritis, it's a two-pronged approach. There are things we can do at home. I touched on some uh, a little bit, which is the smoking factors, um, maintaining a healthy weight, physical activity can help one live with rheumatoid. Unfortunately, there are no factors known that can prevent the onset of rheumatoid. So if rheumatoid was going to happen to you at some point in life, you can kind of lessen the burden by managing some of those home lifestyle things. The mm-hmm. other things that we have, of course, is the medication arm. And so when talking to your doctor and kind of having that timeline of symptoms, they may start talking to you about, okay, this treatment is available and its goal is to slow down the progression of and joint damage that over many years has proven to help patients with rheumatoid get back to a normal lifestyle get something called remission and finally you know, get back to living a a active life that's acceptable to both you and your position so that in the end is, is the goal and we have many medications that now in 2022 are available to us to do that
0: and so what does remission of rheumatoid arthritis look like for for people
1: so rheumatoid arthritis, we didn't have a remission definition until maybe the past five to eight years where remission was now possible with certain medications that are on the market. Remission to a rheumatologist and the patient should equal zero swollen joints, which means on a physical exam, when the rheumatologist examines you and they feel all over those synovial joints, they should not be feeling swollen joints that are with or without treatment. So. For example, if you're, you're feeling swollen at home, it should be confirmed at the physical exam. And if you're getting closer and closer to zero swollen joints each time they feel you and can get even closer to being on less and less medication, that's where you're headed towards your diagnosis or sorry, your um, definition of remission. And usually that's a personal thing between each patient and the rheumatologist.
0: So somebody might still be having a low dose of medication and very minimal pain and can be considered in remission. Exactly. Okay. Which is so amazing. Cause I mean, I imagine this impacts quality of life at, at every age and it may impact relationships and one's job, mm-hmm. um, friends, activities, uh, social engagements, mental health and emotional health. I am, certain it would impact, um, somebody, you know, so many people are chronically busy these days Mm -hmm. and it could certainly impact that as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned some topics that I think we're a bit shy to mention when we're in that 10, 15, 20 minute encounter with, uh, with our position, especially when it comes to intimate relationships, when it comes to work life balance, Um, rheumatoid arthritis is one of those diseases that does affect more women than men and uh, most of the time you know women i find they won't open up as much and and say you know i am struggling or i'm unable to care for my kids plus go to my Mm -hmm. job and then i have to come home and and be intimate because i want to but i'm not but i'm not able to and it could be as simple as well you have a lot of swelling still we can get control and maybe it's uh, from morning stiffness improving, so that improves how the rest of the day goes, or if it's swelling, even in the groin and in the hips, if those joints are working better, then intimacy also can improve, and we've heard that many times, but it's, it's that conversation that has to be an open line of discussion. Patients probably don't even know that rheumatoid arthritis can affect everything from, uh, from morning till night.
0: Absolutely. Every aspect of life. Dr. Gill, thank you so much. I've certainly had an education on rheumatoid arthritis myself here today. So that was excellent. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for joining me. That was Dr. Sonia Gill, rheumatologist in Ontario. Coming up next, we're going to stick with the bones. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday night health show. The lines are open. The number to call is one 399 9898 That's one 399 9898 Feel free to call or text that number. Ankylosing spondylitis is a lifelong progressive inflammatory disease that affects young people. AS or ankylosing spondylitis is difficult to diagnose and causes patients constant symptoms, including pain, and stiffness, particularly in the spine, which results in significant impairment of a person's quality of life. 82% of Canadians living with ankylosing spondylitis have changed their life expectations because of their disease. Joining me on the line is Dr. Ali Karam. He is a bilingual AS patient and board member of the Canadian Spondylitis Association. Good evening, Dr. Karam.
2: Good evening, Maureen. Thank you.
0: Ah, thank you for joining me. Uh, this isn't a condition that is well known, or, or I think by virtue of its name alone, people may not have heard of it, or um, it, it sounds like it's not that common. But yet a number of Canadians live with this particular lifelong progressive inflammatory disease.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, thank you again for uh, the chance and uh, well, the honor to have for having me today to talk about AS. So, AS exactly yeah. as you said, it's a very difficult uh, name to pronounce. Uh, so let's stick with AS, and it is a kind of a rare uh, disease uh, that affects the joints. It's basically the body that attacks the joints, mainly the spine and the lower spine, and the articulations that are adjacent to the spine. Thus, the term axial. Um, it's, it's disease that affects a young population. So the average uh, age at diagnosis is 30 years. So it's a young active population and the prevalence is around 0.5 to 1% of the population.
0: Which is significant. And, you know, a person at the age of 30, they're really at the prime of their lives. Um, you know, this is when their career, if, if it hasn't already taken off in their twenties and it, you know, they might be looking at uh, settling down, starting a family, and chronic pain and stiffness, particularly in the spine, would be very difficult to live with. It would—I I would imagine that if it if it were chronic and difficult to diagnose, meaning patients may have to go from one doctor to the next to actually get the proper diagnosis, and so that can lead to frustration, and and the pain can lead to isolation, and even emotional or mental health issues like depression or anxiety. I mean, this is one very complex disease.
2: It is. It is. It is very difficult to diagnose at first because it presents in flares. That means that we have random, unpredictable episodes that self-subside. And what's even more uh, difficult, yes, the average age of diagnosis is 30. However, the estimated time to diagnosis is seven to nine years which is even more frustrating. And as you said, it has major repercussions on one's function, mental health, professional, social, and personal life. So yes, it's a very, very challenging disease.
0: Wow. So I didn't realize that they had, um, that there were episodes of ankylosing spondylitis or AS that occurred. So did they just get a, a period of time where they may experience pain and stiffness and then it goes away?
2: Exactly. So let me give you my, my own experience. So at times, mm-hmm. I was doing my residency in orthopedic surgery when I started having my first flares. So at times, I would just wake up totally normal, and at other times, I would wake up feeling very, very, very old. I, I wasn't able to do the simplest things, like, for example, tying my shoes or standing up, just walking. So as you said, like, the result is a lot of confusion, anger, sadness not knowing what you had. Um, And for me personally, it was not being able to perform at my best uh, at kind of my peak was very, very frustrating. So there's a lot of implications there. And yes, they do come in flares. And that's the reason also why people at a certain point in time, they think because like all the results came, uh, usually come negative at first. It takes years for them to get to the right diagnosis. So at times they think that it's in their head. And that they're faking mm-hmm. being sick well in uh, in reality they're actually faking being well, and that's the main uh, challenge of as at first
0: wow, very interesting. How long did it take you if you don't mind my asking um, to get your diagnosis
2: well uh, I was lucky it took me two years at the same time i have to uh, i mean you have to uh, you have to know like i I was basically in um kind of a doing my training in the musculoskeletal field and I was surrounded by experts in the musculoskeletal field and yet we all missed the diagnosis for two years. So that was basically one of the reasons um, why I joined the CSA because my biggest passion at this moment really became my, my biggest challenge I'm sorry became really my biggest passion because I I was like I was in the field really surrounded by all these experts and we, we had to be all missed the diagnosis. So I, I can't imagine how it feels for other colleagues and other uh, friends that experienced that. And mainly they had to wait for 7, 9, maybe 12 years to get to, get to the right diagnosis, which is very, that, very um, difficult.
0: That is incredible. I mean, I was going to say, here you are doing orthopedic surgery training <laughs> and um, and it's still taking two years, which is a very long time for people to suffer. And, and how many flares would you have had over, over a year, for example?
2: Oh, um, difficult to say. Um, I mean, I would say at least um, maybe seven to eight. But at the same time, as I said, I mean, all my tests were coming up negative. And right. every, I mean, literally speaking, everything was negative at first. Um, so again, I thought that I was OK. And it was in my head at first. I was kind of confused. But I was lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, uh, I mean, I, I had to, I had to thank my wife. That was a resident in, med- in family medicine back then. She, she had this gut feeling that it might be AS, and mm. it turned out to be right. But again, I mean, it's, um, it's a very, very challenging disease.
0: It, it certainly sounds it, and and it really can significantly impair a person's quality of life. You know, women in their thirties, they're, you know, women are delaying childbirth in in certain areas these days, or people are delaying childbirth. Um, And so say a a woman who is diagnosed at the age of, or or who starts having flares, I should say, at the age of 30, I mean, it can literally delay uh, childbearing years given all that can occur with an undiagnosed case of AS.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and this is unfortunate. Absolutely. And this is unfortunate. And um, I mean, we're doing, I mean, the, um, now the, um, uh, I mean, the word is trying to really advance in terms of trying to reduce that delayed diagnosis. We're doing our part uh, with the CSA. I think everyone is trying to do their part. But again, yeah, unfortunately, this is a reality. And again, this is not a man's disease as, as we used to think. This is a, a disease that affects equally men and women.
0: Wow. And and you refer to the CSA, meaning the Canadian Spondylitis Association, of which you are a board member, which is fantastic. And uh, I'm sure they love having you. You know, when we share our stories, we empower so many other people. Now, there's some exciting news, I understand, on the front, on the ankylosing spondylitis front. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, again, I mean, this disease uh, has um, challenges in terms of of diagnosis. And the other challenge is for patients is access to innovative medications. So the good news is that recently in the last five to 10 years, we had access to uh, biological agents that changed completely the prognosis and quality of life of at least a certain part or a big part of patients that were not responding to the usual treatments. And that we're suffering from chronic pain, so usually those treatments are administered via an injection every once or uh, i mean every once, every two weeks or once every three weeks, four weeks, and patients tend to become resistant to those medications after five years, thus the need for access to new innovative medications to make sure that this young productive active uh, population maintain can actually maintain a decent quality of life and prevent potential complications of the disease, mainly joint fusion. So, we're, we're very happy to, um, to know right now as uh, a CSA that RingVoc received Health Canada's approval for the treatment of AS and psoriatic arthritis. So, it actually adds an important game changing alternative that has also the advantage. be the first drug uh, of this category to be taken already so if patients um, are afraid to take injections this is basically an alternative for them uh, to take an oral dose that could really benefit them and really could be a game changer so as CSA our role here is to advocate and to be the leading void for uh, leading voice for patients and to make sure that all Canadians basically have access to the, to the drugs for free and as fast as possible. Because in AS, time is spine.
0: Sorry, did you say time is?
2: Spine. Spine Wait, means, saying... um, yeah, the spine.
0: Time is of the essence. Time is words. spine.
2: It's basically your spine. So time is spine. Yes. Basically you want to you save your spine. You want to save it from joint fusion. So basically, um, as fast as possible, I mean, as quickly as possible as you get your treatment, um, it will benefit you and basically prevent that complication of having a joint fusion
3: or basically right. having
2: That's... your spine completely fused, which means you won't be able to move anymore.
0: Wow. So this is uh, where so I go with addition... spine. Yeah, Absolutely. In addition to that, the ongoing damage to joints, people's uh, spines will fuse. And, exactly. and so with that, will they have limited or limited mobility or no mobility?
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, this is why those treatments are so important, because basically we want to prevent that. But historically speaking, before these treatments, we, I mean, if you use, if you just go uh, go on Google and you just... Uh, enter the term ankylosing spondylitis, you would see those mm-hmm. horrible images of people uh, with a very big back deformity that can't be, really be reduced. It's because the spine mm-hmm. is completely rigid, right? But this yes. is why actually the term ankylosing spondylitis right now is changing for axial spondyloarthritis because we don't have those cases anymore of uh, patients uh, with this really stiff co- uh, spine, because uh-huh. of those new innovative treatments.
0: Well, it's fantastic work that you're doing. I'm so glad that there's a new treatment option, Rinvac, available for AS patients, and I'm glad to be helping to spread the word about this because this this is something that really impacts quality of life and and really robs people of a number of years of their life in the prime of their life. Thank you so much, Dr. Karam, for joining me on the program tonight. Uh, Thank you. You're so welcome. That was Dr. Eli Karam, a bilingual AS patient and board member of the Canadian Spondylitis Association. Coming up next, going to be talking about the importance of doing even more exercise than is recommended on your length of life. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the show. We just have a few minutes here to talk about a very important subject. As you know, I am all about health, (laughs) including sexual health, um, which oftentimes people forget, or, or mental health, emotional health as well, spiritual health, all incredibly important. We tend to think of health as physical health. And physical health, of course, is incredibly important, as is physical exercise. And a new study finds the lowest risk of death was amongst adults who exercised, wait for it, 150 to 600 minutes a week. That's up to 10 hours of exercise per week. It was an analysis of more than 100,000 participants over a 30-year follow-up period, that found adults who perform two to four times the currently recommended amount of moderate or vigorous physical activity per week have a significantly reduced risk of mortality. That's according to new research published in the American Heart Association's journal, Circulation. The reduction was 21 to 23 percent for people who engaged in two to four times the recommended amount of vigorous physical activity, and 26 to 31% for people who engaged in two to four times the recommended amount of moderate physical activity each week. We know that physical activity, if I haven't told you this before, but it is highly associated with a reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease and premature death. In 2018, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans recommended that adults engage in at least 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate physical exercise or 75 to 150 minutes a week of vigorous physical activity or an equivalent combination of both intensities. I can tell you being an American, believe me, they are not exercising that much down there unless you um, say they're exercising in restaurants because there's a lot of eating out, which is unhealthy for you. It's not great. Everything tastes great in a restaurant because they add lard and butter to everything. If you notice your chicken doesn't come out quite the same as it does in a restaurant. So it's very important. Keep in mind, it's not just important to exercise. It's also important what you put in your mouth. And, um, I had a lot of requests last week for my all in nutrition plan. And so if you would like a copy of that, feel free to email me at hotmail.com and I'll send that out to you. One of these days, I just thought of this now, when I have a little bit more time, I will actually review the all in nutrition plan and explain the method to my madness on it. But if you want to reduce your weight, increase your energy, reduce your cardiovascular uh, risk and also risk of diabetes or even reverse your diabetes. These are the kinds of things you need to do. You need to cut out the sugar in your life, increase the protein, reduce the carbs, and you need to exercise, especially if you want to live longer. Um, you know, even if the more, according to the study, the more you exercised, the, um, you know, even if you exercise at 10 hours a week of vigorous exercise, there, there were no side effects to it. There was, there was no, nothing bad was going to happen except you were going to live longer. So the researchers analyzed mortality, mortality data and medical records for over hundred thousand adults gathered from two large prospective studies, the all-female nurses health study and the all-male health professionals follow-up study from 1988 to 2018. The thing about the study, it's, I was so disappointed to see this participants whose data were examined were 63% female and more than 96% were white adults. That just does not define us. We are not just white adults and it's every person's regardless of race, color, every person's health is important. And we're going to actually have different risks for, um, persons of color, um, other Other people other than white, but so many of these studies they limit it to white men, and uh, you know what? It's not. It does not actually reflect what we see in society, and it's quite honestly not fair. But the people in this study had an average age of sixty-six years and an average body mass index of twenty-six kilograms per meter squared over the thirty-year follow-up period. They self-reported leisure time physical activity. They did validated questionnaires. Um, you know, all, all moderate activity was defined as walking, lower intensity exercise, weightlifting and calisthenics. Um, and so, you know, it was a very interesting study. It doesn't take much, you know, I picked up a pair of uh, weights, two and a half pounds, and I am just doing those much more frequently throughout the day. I have some five pounders and eight pounders, but I find these just help to me to do some, do it a little bit more frequently. Anyway, get moving it's never too late to start. Your health is worth it. You are worth it. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the burnout rates of professionals with an expert on the matter. Dr. Tommy Mitchell, I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight on this uh, Pride long weekend, August long weekend here anyway in British Columbia. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully you're celebrating out there as well and uh, maybe your health is just a little bit better after perhaps hearing one or two of my shows over the last 10 years. Anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you tuning in. In this hour, we have lots to talk about. We're going to be talking about Something we don't talk a lot about, but we might feel and think a lot on it. Sexual tension coming up in the next half hour. And then also couples communication and some of the unhealthy ways like the silent treatment that we bestow upon our partners out there. But first and foremost, I am joined on the line by Dr. Tomi Mitchell, because we are going to be talking about empowering lawyers, doctors and other professionals to reduce burnout. She is an MD, wellness and performance. And she also talks about mental health. She's a speaker and a coach. She's all about burnout prevention and leadership development. And uh, she joins me on the line now. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell.
1: Good evening.
0: I am fabulous. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. That's so great to hear. Um, Burnout. Something uh, many of us, <laughs> present company included, have experienced. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you focus mainly on lawyers, doctors, and other professionals. Reduce burnout. Why this particular group?
3: Because I think that's a group that has prided itself personally and professionally to be almost untouchable. Like you're supposed to be put on the strong front. And there's uh-huh. high expectations for you and you, there's also fear that showing anything but strength may impact your profession, your work, higher ability, et cetera, et cetera. But even though I do focus on professionals, I have clients that are you know, not none of the above. So uh-huh. but I definitely wanna reach out to the physician lawyers, other working professionals, because that's where I've been. Like I've been a business, I am a business owner. I've had a few businesses. I'm a physician. Um, I can understand what it's like working in a high paced environment.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's so, it can be so stressful. And um, I know, you know, I, have worked with a a lot of physicians. Um, I've worked with some lawyers, Um, but you know, a physician's, you know, they have secretly you know, told me about the, the stressors and the challenges. I, I I worked with one physician who'd had a tremendous trauma, if you will, a personal trauma, and it, it, it involved uh, his work and th- they were going to retire and I very early. And I said, you know, why go out on a low note? Why not go mm-hmm. out on a high note? You know, take some time off. He, he was very depressed. To take some time off, recover, heal, and come back. Don't let the judgment of other people who don't even know the story influence your life. And you know, he he did come back, and and ended his career um, a few years later on a high note. Um, but you know, he was ashamed. He he told me, "I'm so ashamed." He was crying, sobbing to me. Um, I, I just want you to describe what burnout is for people. How, how does that, is it the same for everybody? What? How do we define burnout?
3: So burnout is more than stress because we all experience stress, whether it's, you know, you lose your job, a flood, or let's just distress, or the stress. the good stress is to get married, have a baby, which are all good things, but they add stress. Burnout is so much deeper and it is impacts many areas of your life. So the textbook definition it's a psychological syndrome where you have prolonged a response to prolonged chronic interpersonal stressors of whether on the work, whether at home, etc cetera, etc. Cetera, and it leads to overwhelming exhaustion. like you are done. there's no more you know fifth wind or sixth wind you're done. You might feel okay. more cynicism, right and detachment. Uh-huh. Something that you normally mm-hmm. love, it's now a source of pain. And as a result, you feel a lack of accomplishment because you once prided yourself on what you do, but it's no longer bringing that joy it once did. Mm-hmm. I, I think, speaking from experience,
0: I think it also impacts your sleep. You go to sleep at yes. night, you wake up the next morning, you may have slept eight or nine hours, but you feel like a, only a minute has passed and you don't feel well rested. I remember in my case, um, the doorbell would ring and it would just set off my entire vestibular system. It seemed it just like, I just startled. Um, and I just felt depleted. I felt, um, you know, and it was a time where I was just giving too much of myself to too many people. Um, and, Yeah. And, and I just felt like it it wasn't anything particularly bad that, that had occurred. uh, But it was just, I mean, there were, there were things, obviously problems going on, issues, um, whatever, issues at work. But I also said, I will
3: never have that again. (laughs) I
0: will never allow that to happen again.
3: 100%. And, you know, many people, when they think of burnout, they think of it just being the job, but it's so much more. Okay,
0: mm-hmm.
3: there's I like to look at three levels. There's the personal things going on in your life, right? Your health, mm-hmm. your coping, your coping strategies, your family, and all those relationships. And then in the workplace is the teams you're on. If you're on a team that is highly critical, micromanaging, unreasonable expectations, like gaslighting, problems with you know discrimination, whatever it might be. That acts as fact, uh-huh. a factor. And then you put the system. So if the whole like macro ecosystem is dysfunctional, as many healthcare uh-huh. providers feel the healthcare system is dysfunctional, despite them eating right, exercising, sleeping good, they are fighting an uphill battle. So it's really important. There's three levels to look at because so many times leadership says, here's more resiliency training, here's more resiliency training. Sometimes that's a slap in the face of the employee who's like, no, I am resilient. But the problem is the leadership, the problem is the mission, the okay. culture of this organization is toxic. So it's 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 so like it's so complicated in a way, but it's it's not just the individual. We have to look at the bigger picture and that goes back to my passion, is a holistic approach to life, a holistic approach to burnout, right?
0: Absolutely. That was my issue. It was actually a workplace issue and it was a toxic culture and everything you described in there with the micromanaging and the criticism and um, it was brutal. You know, we have way more toxic cultures in the the workplace than we realize. And so, you know, I I hit two more (laughs) after that first one. The first one was a shocker. Um, the second one was a surprise. And the third one I saw long before and was able to leave, um, you know, uh, leave before it did any damage. Uh, The second one didn't do any damage either because I'd already had that experience and I was so protective of myself, of my emotional health and my mental health that I just thought, oh no, I see what this is. And, Mm -hmm. um, I happened to document everything and I, I did actually sue the second, the second one um which leads us to the lawyers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who are who are, you know, to be honest with you, that wasn't the greatest experience either. I mean it was it was fantastic. They were initially great and then at the end it was like depleting or disappointing because lawyer, you know, they, they force you to settle. None of these mm-hmm. issues go to court and I didn't care about the money. I didn't want the, any money. I didn't want this person to do this to other women again after me. Um, you know, and then you're forced to sign an NDA. And so yeah. it's, you know, it it's also, but you have to move on, you know, you have to, uh, you know, move on from it, but at the time also you have a life and you have, you know, your family responsibilities and and bills, responsibilities. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And relatives and, you know, parents and kids and in-laws and dogs and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so much is going on and it was just, you know, overwhelming, um, which Which I think is burnout.
3: Yes. And, you know, you mentioned a really good point in how you manage your second case. You basically created boundaries, right? Uh Um, Uh like saying, this is my line in the sand. We're not crossing it okay? And you stood up for yourself, and you documented it.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Absolutely. And I mean,
0: the one, yeah, the one benefit that's come out of that is I, I share that story with so many people. And so many people will email me, call me about what's going on in their workplace. And I can recognize it so quickly, you know, and, and we think in healthcare that it's not going to happen. But all of my experiences were healthcare. Uh, One was a physician, one was a, a physician who actually had, you know, and you find out that you're not the only one. In fact, this particular person was, had applied for a position at one of the major health authorities. And um, when they applied, the posting came down because the women on the team actually said, if you hire him, we're, we're going to quit. We're gonna resign. So they had to pull the posting down. You know, so wow. these people that have these, you know, toxic ways about them that, you know, promote these toxic cultures, they're they've been doing this for a long time. They hit a number of people. Yeah.
3: It's but that's toxic. just one way. Yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say the toxic work culture is prevalent in society. It is more common than you think and it's not always as obvious as you think. But it, that's right it's shocking how well it's not really shocking when i look at it but it, initially it's like oh my goodness like why mm-hmm. is this so bad
0: absolutely absolutely i had a client recently a patient and they recognized a the company they were working with they recognized that there was a lack of integrity and you know reconsidered whether they wanted to stay with that company or not um but this isn't the only type of burnout i want to talk to you about you know why lawyers in particular burn out their stressors and and also yeah. does they celebrate a lot you know a lot of their wins <laughs> And they mm-hmm. all seem mm-hmm. to win because they settle with one another. I often say lawyers are in each other's back. With all due respect to the lawyers out there, if there's any listening anymore,
3: yeah. <laughs> ever they to me. hang out and but, go shopping you know, together. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, they're in. They're like in each holding... other's back
0: pockets. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's Anyone pretty. that thinks that their case isn't going to settle has oh, you know, got another thing coming. Yeah. Yes. Um. But. But. But they practice in a certain way. They. They're alone quite often yeah. um you know they work in solitude there's a lot of celebration that goes on there's a high stress uh, a yeah. lot you know disappointment with the career and then also um physicians how they 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 have to be on you mentioned that they have to be perfect but i want to dive into that a little bit more when we come okay. back after the break my guest is dr tomi mitchell we're talking about empowering lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Tommy Mitchell is my guest and we are talking burnout and burnout prevention. She focuses her practice on empowering lawyers, doctors, and other professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for staying on the line. Um, How can people, especially in these high-powered positions, I imagine you see a lot of CEOs as well, um, how can they prevent burnout?
3: Okay, that's a really great question. I'm going to try to say it in a few minutes because obviously I spend months and years working with people to do this. So you ought to have... Okay, first start with yourself. Remember I mentioned the three layers. You need to be healthy. That means exercising, sleeping, having a good mindset, um, strong relationships with others, maintaining healthy finances, all those things in the wellness wheel. Okay, that foundation needs to be there. And then you have to have clear goals in what you want, your work-life balance to look like being reasonable, of course. If you're brand new at the job to say you don't want to work, evenings or weekends, you're the bottom of the total pole. You typically work those hours. And just having that self-reflection. I actually have a tool that I use. Um, it's a high-performance planner. I, I have a lot of respect for Ben Bouchard. He does a lot of work in this area. And mm-hmm. every morning and evening, I evaluate how the day has been. Because the thing with burnout, it's insidious. It can kind of creep mm-hmm. up on you. Like when burnout hit me, when I finally realized this is what it was, it was like I was tired, exhausted. I was done. Just thought of anyone calling my name annoyed me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, my job, my job, my job. like, leave me alone, please, for two seconds. But you you have to be very aware and you have to have a system in place to keep you healthy, keep you going, because our world is designed, corporations are designed in a way that would likely lead you to burnout. We are a society that values productivity and don't get me wrong i encourage people to be productive however i believe you can increase your bandwidth aka increase the size of your cup and it's overflowing versus half empty so i took a different spin on it because uh-huh. i'm working with people who are driven who you know want to work who love what they do they love to contribute to society but they feel like they're empty well you can actually increase your cup. And you can the goal ultimately is, like I said, have it run over. Systems have well, that to be sounds fantastic. Yeah. And and
0: I imagine setting healthy limits and boundaries is important as well.
3: One hundred percent. That is really, really key. And really um, hard
0: for people to say no.
3: You know, no, no is a complete sentence. Those- yeah.
0: It is. No, is and it- it's re- really hard, especially in those high powered positions.
3: Yes. Well, there's a way in which I teach my clients how to say no, that still sounds professional and get the point across, you know? So, you know, if someone wants to give you another thing on your desk, you know, dear such and such, I appreciate you thinking about me. However, my plate is really full right now and I value time with my family so I can recharge and there are certain boundaries I don't want to cross. So I can A, be the person I want to be at home and at the office. If there is something on my plate that can be on, be put on hold so I can take on this task, what would it be? Right. It's like, accepting exactly. that,
0: Excellent right? advice. Dr. Mitchell. Yes. It's excellent advice, but I've got to cut you off. I feel terrible. Oh, Quickly. Your hi. best way to, we'll get you back. What's the best way to get in touch with you? LinkedIn. Ye-
3: Yeah, LinkedIn, Dr. Tommy Mitchell with an M, and you'll see my smiling face.
0: (sighs) Yes, you will indeed. Thank you so much. We'll definitely get you back. This is such an important subject. Been there. Coming up next, sexual tension. Is it good judgment or is it pleasure? I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I get a lot of questions about sexual tension. What does it feel like? What is it? Is it the same as a crush? Well, the short answer is sexual tension is not the same as having a crush. Sexual desire or lust can occur without having a deep attraction for a person. For many people, a crush is a combination of sexual and romantic desire, or sometimes just romantic desire, because asexual people can have crushes Two. but what exactly is sexual tension and what does it feel like well here are some of the signs of sexual tension which you may or may not or most likely have experienced this in the past so here it is and and let me just say it's a it's a conflict okay it's a conflict going on between your mind and your body but some of the signs of sexual tension include flirting of course eye contact lingering touches an overall feeling of secrecy, sweaty palms, your temperature rises or you feel flushed. You find yourself in close proximity to the person in group settings like the office. Other people notice or comment on the sexual tension. You have all the butterflies in your stomach. You feel all the feels. your voice subtly changes pitch. When you speak, you might feel shaky, muscle tension, or you might subconsciously flex. Be mindful of that. Your heart rate may increase and you can't stop, wait for it, smiling. Oftentimes one's nipples harden as well and you can feel physically turned on. Your genitals may get aroused and swollen or your vagina self lubricates. The strange thing about sexual tension is, as I mentioned, it's that conflict because your logical brain is like, this is such a bad idea. You know, you want to smash this idea, squash this idea, but you just can't, but you might be unsure whether or not you're actually feeling it. So in matters of sex, lust, and anxiety, there's overlap. The anxiety and sexual responses that you might be feeling, Both can make your heart race, increase your blood pressure, and give you that feeling of, uh, speed or, or adrenaline. And this is why sometimes people confuse feelings of hate with feelings of sexual tension. The enemies to lovers trope is what we're talking about here. But many, many people experience sexual tension. It's simply that feeling that something sexual needs to happen to resolve the tension between two or even three or four people. And the sexual tension usually happens, almost always happens before any sexual contact is made. And that sexual tension can linger for weeks or even years after sexual contact has been made but oftentimes it's that lead up it's that arousal it's that thought it's it can involve sexting it can involve thinking about somebody it can involve seeing somebody from afar not necessarily knowing somebody but then you get together and other people notice there's something between those two you might hear why don't you two get a room but if you've ever experienced sexual tension you know, it's physically and emotionally exhausting. It's also confusing and fun and exciting and totally consuming because you're, you're thinking about this. It's, it's almost an unmet need. Your brain is literally fighting itself over your desires, over those sexy feels and, and, from an an anatomical standpoint or a physiological standpoint, the hypothalamus, which is the brain's pleasure center, wants to feel good and motivates you by releasing estrogen and testosterone, those sex hormones. But the frontal lobe, which is responsible for impulse control, like your judgment center, is basically telling your body to stop. You should not have those feelings. You should not be thinking about this with this other person. Oftentimes it happens to, uh, outside of a committed relationship. And that's why it's, it's a no, no, it's forbidden fruit, but it doesn't mean, you know, nobody ever said you're only gonna be attracted to one person for the rest of your life. Now, sexual tension is a little bit different than sexual frustration, which, which is more the debate between your pleasure brain, wanting to get some sexual gratis, gratification, and your frontal lobe assessing the obstacles and the risks that are involved. And you know what? There can be risks involved, which is what makes sexual tension between two people so exciting as well. Your brain is telling you two different things. Your body can feel so strange, so different, so unusual, very exciting. Your heart is racing. You're dying to see this person. You want to run into them. You might be seeing them at a party or you might be seeing them at – you know, at the community pool, or you might be seeing them at the office or wherever. But when that sexual tension takes hold, you might also start acting a little bit strange (laughs) around the person you feel attracted to, you feel drawn to. You might be shamelessly flirting. You might say some things that you would never say to somebody else or that you never planned on saying to them as well. But, you know, here's the thing, if you're experiencing sexual tension and it's somebody that you've just met or you've met a few times and every time you run into them, you have this particular tension between the two of you, there's, you know, do you confess your lust, hook up in the shower? (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Um, It just depends on what impact it's going to have on your relationship so you really have to settle things between your judgment brain and your pleasure brain in other words they need to come to an agreement of sorts but it's a very exciting feeling it can be um, a lot of fun but it can also be very dangerous and very dangerous for people's relationships and also that sexual tension say you've met somebody at the office that sexual tension that you experience at the office you that actually may come home with you but you might be distracted at home thinking about somebody else um this could be you know where you've got to make a decision do you take that leap is it did you maybe you never expected this to happen after you were married or after you got into a relationship you didn't expect to have sexual tension this this endless flirting with somebody else, that that feeling of excitement, um, that those lingering touches, those hang closer than you normally would or should. Um, and so, it's something to think about, but it's also something that you you know really have to get a hold of yourself and think: Is this something that I want to do? Are these waters into which I want to dive? what is the risk to my relationship if you were in a relationship or if the other person is in a relationship anyway sexual tension something you've probably experienced in the past something that maybe put a big smile on your face maybe was good maybe you acted on it maybe you didn't that is entirely up to you that is your decision anyway but just understand the conflict between your brain and your body between your pleasure center and your judgment center coming up next we're gonna be talking about some of the unhealthy ways that couples communicate. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. And you know, this is a subject that I am sure a lot of people are not necessarily mum on. It's that silent storm. You know, when you get in an argument with your partner, your lover, your spouse, and then they resort to stopping speaking to you. Some couples just buckle down in silence. And and you know what? It's very difficult and it's very challenging. And, and some people even call it a form of abuse. It can be a mere personality trait, but it can also be a symptom of something much more significant. And you know, we call this negative silence and it's oftentimes related to a person's EQ or emotional quotient. And so it's basically, you know, how do you deal with yourself and and other people? Um, If you, for example, it can be very simple. You can maybe not like a shirt that your partner or husband is wearing, or you maybe don't like the way your spouse parts their hair, but you don't really know why that bothers you. And you, instead of saying something, you go into silent mode. It might remind you of someone else in the past, an abusive figure that you might've had in your lifetime who parted their hair that way, or or somebody who didn't pay particular particularly good attention to hygiene and or fashion, and maybe that's something that's important to you. Um, but you know what, you revert or retreat into silence and you aren't willing to ask yourself, what's contributing to this silence? You need self-awareness to be able to properly deal with your own emotions. I always say, you know, being upfront, being truthful, and you know, my style is work it out, deal with it, and and get through it. I can't say that everybody in my life has the same (laughs) MO that I have or the same way, but I just don't like things to fester and for things to go on and on. I feel like any conflict can be resolved. And and I prefer to resolve those conflicts fairly quickly, Um, just to get it out on the table, apologize in a meaningful way. And, and you know, an apology should never come with an excuse. An apology ought to just be, I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry for what I did. I didn't realize that that was gonna hurt you in that way. You know, that's about as much as you can give um, for an excuse, not this, but you do this or you did that all the time. So, you know, be very careful of your apologies. And I do think apologies need to come quickly. You know, they, they say it's best in life to do the next right thing. And I think that's great advice. But some silence can be highly destructive, both to the silent partner and the relationship as well whether it's a marital relationship or common law whatever Uh, but one of the most detrimental is passive aggression and this type of silence can be an act of quiet hostility where one person will act as though they're cooperating but silently they do everything they can to sabotage the situation I'll give you an example. One spouse may agree that it's a good idea to visit the in-laws for the weekend, but then will sulk the entire time that they are visiting. Or they'll just say, oh yeah, you know, I wanna go, I wanna do this or whatever, and then hold that against you later. Well, I did this for you and and you won't do that for me, that kind of a thing. When any kind of abuse, like verbal, social, emotional, uh, you know, these, are forms of abuse i want to say it's not just physical abuse but emotional abuse verbal abuse social abuse they are all very real but there's also physical sexual and economical abuse or financial abuse abuse silence when when it's feared so when somebody is fearful that that may happen again it's happened in the past it may may happen again silence can be used as a buffer for the victim. So it's used in a safety sort of way and, and silence becomes safe. So the victim thinks that they'd, better, they'd be better by keeping quiet than saying something that could incur wrath. And so that's also a very unhealthy way to deal uh, with conflict in a relationship. This is very, very common, this next one that I want to talk to you about, and that is avoidance. And that's related to passive aggression, but without the feelings of hostility. It's a way of controlling in a way, in a way. It's a way of saying you don't want to talk about the issue because it's uncomfortable and don't want to hurt your spouse's feelings. So you avoid the topic altogether. This is not my favorite dance that couples do. And many, many couples, if not all couples do this type of thing. Oftentimes older couples have learned what to say and what to avoid. And it's, it's a defense mechanism in a way for the relationship to minimize fights. Silent, silent avoidance isn't a very healthy way to communicate, but it can be used by people to avoid fights over, you know, those small things that people sweat in the relationship, those things that may not necessarily be worthy of a fight. You know, and that's the other thing is, you know, think, think about it. Think about what you're arguing about. Think about what you're upset about. You know, does it matter? I also like that 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years, or, you know, one minute, one month, one year, you know, is this going to matter in a minute from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now? Probably not. There's another method of unhealthy communication, which is, which oftentimes means people sell their soul and is peace at all costs, this is a codependent stance and it's prevalent when one partner discovers that the other partner has a destructive habit, but doesn't know how to address the issue at hand. It's the elephant in the room. The quote unquote innocent spouse is not confronting the issue and therefore that leads to enabling the if you will at fault spouse by not saying anything you know i really think that peace at all costs is one of those communication methods that leads to a lot of divorce people never say anything i, I know i've said to many couples have you called them on it no i've never said a thing it's like why not needless to say you know my style <laughs> Call them on it. Um, you know, speak about it, talk about it. It's okay to actually have a discussion as long as there's no name calling, as long as it's healthy debate back and forth. Each person feels heard, and and so I think it's very important. And sometimes you are just going to agree to disagree. But you know, anger is also a healthy emotion when utilized properly. Um, you don't want to utilize it to manipulate somebody, but it's okay to get upset about something or to be angry about something. This next one is a big one because we see so much chronic busyness in the world. And that's when you and your spouse busy yourselves all the time. You, with the, that noise of being hyper-connected, you're on your phone, you're on your computer, you're on social media, you would rather be looking at Facebook or Instagram than looking at your lover or your would-be lover. And you, you're not living in the moment and you're not confronting whatever issue that you are dealing with in your relationship. And, you know, we never have a time to stop and reflect on where we're at in our relationships, especially these days, because people are just so Busy and everything has to be so perfect. I I hear a lot about vacuum lines, carpet lines, <laughs> in um, people's houses, and um, you know people are making sure that their houses are perfect and their kids look perfect and their life looks perfect and their house looks perfect and everything is perfect except for the relationship. And so it's really a good idea to settle down, sit down, relax, chill, and take a breather. Um, unhealthy power is a form of emotional abuse and that's where one in the couple manipulates the other into feeling as though they've done something wrong. And so if, for example, that silent spouse gives their partner the cold shoulder and waits until their partner comes to beg them out of their bad mood. This is extremely unhealthy and this is where silence gets cooperation, if you will. And, and then the other thing is playing the victim or ruminating, and that's dwelling on your unfortunate circumstances. But if you spoke up, talked about what your feelings were, what bothers you about a situation, uh, it's so much healthier. When you talk about it, you release the pain. But when you ruminate, you're making the rest of the world revolve around you. And you believe that the world somehow needs to make you happy. And uh, you know what? nobody can make you happy and you can't make anybody else happy. That is your responsibility altogether. But rather than seeing what positive options you can explore with your spouse, you prefer to swim in your own misery or, you know what, hold one pity party after another. And that can lead to bitterness, which can lead to contempt, which is actually cancer of the soul.